You can sift through that 20 minutes of garbage yes. and then you can <laughs> sift through the next hour and a half of garbage. <laughs> <laughs> See if you can salvage something out of that. Whoop, there, we go. there it is. <laughs> <laughs> Broadcasting live from Beef Station. Join us as we rocket through the stars at the speed of sound. I'm Oscar. I'm Andrew. Welcome aboard. Mm. How you doing, boy? I'm good, man. I'm good. How'd yeah. you like how I very subtly mixed up the intro there? Oh, yeah. It was <laughs> yeah? extremely good. I was uh, incredibly worried. I nearly shat myself. <laughs> then we got back on the normal rails. Then and we I hit thought, record. Here we go. <laughs> now I'm home. Now I'm home. <laughs> Shit in my pants. <laughs> Ask you saying that line <laughs> He says every week While I'm sitting in my own doo-doo <laughs> it's, Wish it's, we'd never started this ritual <laughs> It's our own personal brown note Is it? <laughs> every week you're like, Oscar, yeah but please. the brown note comes first I shit and you start talking <laughs> Like please don't say it Please don't I have to go to work after this I'm running out of pants <laughs> I have to burn them every time Yeah Oh man um, Well, Welcome to Beef Station for another week It's of course our movie podcast with Oscar and Andrew Before we cover off our review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood The new Quentin Tarantino movie that we watched this week <laughs> oh God! What's the word? Is it movie? <laughs> what do we do again? <laughs> uh, we got some, you know, some other, other affairs to attend to. Mm-hmm. But stay tuned for our little discussion and look at and review of the brand new Quentino. Quentin, Quentino. Quentin. Stick with that. The brand new. That Qu- stays. The brand new Quentino film. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which we'll cover later in the episode. Uh, We're going to try and give you a whole bunch of patented beef analysis, and we'll steer clear of spoilers until we really. Uh, until we really warn you to, but um, get get stuck into that little piggy. We've heard recently that we've we've uh, drifted into a bad habit of just describing the plot for half an hour. So uh, we'll describe <laughs> the plot for forty-five minutes. It's Instead a free of, podcast. How dare you complain? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Instead of spoiling the movie, we just ruin it. This is no longer <laughs> no a spoilers, movie but podcast. you won't want to watch it. This is a plot recap podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is the Wikipedia plot section. <laughs> see this movie. See this podcast is an hour and a half long. That's because the movie was an hour and a half. <laughs> Welcome to a minute by a minute live reading, by <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> purely based on recollection rather than the actual script. That's God, a good idea a for a podcast. Fuck, that would be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> perfectly describes you were like, "Oh my God, a nightmare!" And I'm like, "Yes, let's yeah, monetize it, baby." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. We'll give a quick Jesus. little review and then we'll launch into spoilers later in the episode. But for the moment, uh, Andrew, you said that a story. you have a hot anecdote. To I launch do. us off with, you I said do. it like that as well, didn't you? I did. Yeah, not use those words. All right, off yes. you go. I wouldn't. Let's not oversell it before we get stuck <laughs> in. Um, no, I was. You said it was a, a tale to give Moby Dick a run for its money. I was deep onto uh, uh, onto cinema YouTube this week. It was in the summer of my eleventh year. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll contextualize this story with a question to you, Oscar, first. If you, because could, if you could contextualize it with the thing you said before I interrupted you, that'd be great. And I wasn't I'd, listening. I would encourage the listeners to think along with this one. Without incriminating yourself, <laughs> let me ask you, what's the hardest you've ever fucked Beat up oh. at work? <laughs> the hardest I've ever fucked up at work. There's so many... Um, I'm trying to think. Like, I mean, there's been cafe jobs you, and our cinema job, where right? Shit's gone wrong, right. or like 
I've transferred the movie file to a different cinema and you've had to have like a hundred people wait for an hour while the movie copies across. Okay. But there have also been things at my new job where like I've made a mistake that's cost thousands of dollars yeah. and my boss has been like... <sighs> It's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> well, that was my next question: is yeah, could right. you ascribe like a material cost to that fuck up? So you'd say like thousands in the in the range of thousands. I made a mistake recently that probably costed costed thousands. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's a pretty big, pretty pretty reasonably big fuck up. All I've, right. I've, <laughs> no, I've I've I fucked up, but my welcome job. to character assassination <laughs> station with Andrew and Oscar. I know how bad it feels. Like I've fucked up at my job as well, yeah. and I've gotten the flop sweat and realized that I've got to, you know, yeah, <sighs> that. Silent panic before anyone finds out. Yeah, and it's it's even worse when like your boss or whatever is like, no, it's it's fine. Yeah, as if like you know that it's just not worth <gasps> their time. Yeah, they're, they're like, I expected this to happen. Yeah, it's in the budget. It's in the budget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Why do you ask? Okay, so before I tell you why I ask that question, hell yeah. Um, yeah, I, I as I said, I was on cinema cinema YouTube a fair bit this week because I was researching uh, a new camera that I decided to buy. Brilliant. And it's a very entry-level but really high-level cinema camera. All right, mate. So it's not like a professional cinema camera, but it's about as good for uh, quite a bit less of the cost. Now, this cost me, I'll say this. Don't. $3,500. Oh, that's so much money. That's too much money. It's a lot of money. That's too much money. It's a lot of money. It's too much money. it (laughs) It is the most expensive thing I've ever bought. Right. Most expensive thing I've ever bought. It's very expensive. Right. Okay. But it is a competitor to cameras that cost $50,000, which are used on official film sets. In fact... Um, I didn't this, know the Toyota Prius had a camera in it. This now. camera is com- <laughs> it's comparable to uh, things that... So, like, red cameras and ARRI cameras, those are used to film the things that have been shit. on Netflix. And, yeah, like, proper... Uh, maybe not like Marvel films, but basically any film that you've seen on Netflix needs actually they have restrictions on what can be submitted. You have to have filmed it on cameras with certain specs. Yeah. Um, and like those kind of cameras fit that. So we're talking in the range of like fifty to a hundred thousand dollars. These things need a team of trained operating professionals. You got a fancy right? ass camera. Yeah, yeah. But when you get into the realm of like real shit for cinema cameras, right? <laughs> The, the cost, like, skyrockets. And, of course, you get, like, massively diminishing returns, which means that proper studios have to invest shitloads of money because these are extremely niche products that are only yeah. bought by, like, a few companies, maybe. Well, like, it, it reminds me of when Apple recently announced their new Pro 8K monitor mm. and it was, like, eight grand or something yeah. and it was another two grand for a stand and people were balking at it. And all the YouTubers I watched that have fancy pro grade gear we're like yeah it's a lot of money but like all the pro grade shit is really expensive yeah. like mkbhd that tech review was like this is a handle for the camera and it cost me 800 dollars. right a handle and it's like if you're asking why it costs that much you don't need this product you know yeah. it's like or it's because it, like there's only eight assholes that use this camera right. and so they have to make the money back somehow yeah but if you're balking <laughs> at the price it's like well then this isn't for you because yeah. the people that the people that need to use this kind of stuff that are working on an 8K monitor are like, yeah, it's going to cost 10 grand or whatever because yeah. I need that. Yeah. So, a cost, uh, th- there's a, a certain type of, a certain brand of like cinema lenses called Panavision 
lenses, that's right? That's what... Uh, a lot of films are shot on them. That's what The Hateful Eight was shot on, I think. Right. So they make cameras, film cameras. That's probably something that you're thinking yeah. of, right? I think Tarantino is a big fan of using the film cameras on his movies. Yeah. So they make cameras and lenses. And their lenses, their latest lens line is the Panavision Primo 5. Don't. Now, a line of these lenses, because of the way that the business model works, you can't buy a single lens. You have to buy, buy a, like a set. set. Right, yeah. They give you like a wide, a medium, and a, z- a really big zoom. Exactly. Or like, yeah. So you're basically buying any lens that you might ever need, but you have to buy them all together, right? Brilliant. Now, watch all these facts coalesce. Andrew. In the context of 2004. <sighs> Cast your mind back to Britain. <laughs> what? Because a man named Tim Burton was filming a remake named Charlie and the Chocolate Factory starring Johnny Depp. Okay. Yes. Now, a rigger on a film set is someone whose job it is is basically to structure all the equipment and kind of Find it all together, right? So if there's a crane that's being used or whatever, a rigger... With a camera attached to it and a chair on the crane with the director sits and all that shit. Heaps of shit. Basically everything. And they manage all of the cables and stuff. They work closely with the grip team. Lighting and all of the technicians. And yeah, exactly. Right, so yeah, got it. The setup to film a particular scene was so complicated that they needed to bring in a team of... An American team of rigging specialists across to the States, right? Because they knew how to work with all the equipment, Yeah. Across to Britain, you mean? Across to Britain on set. So they specially, as if there weren't riggers in Britain, right, they specially brought across this team just to work on this thing because this particular scene was so technical and complex, right? Sure. Now, the scene in question, <laughs> if you recall one of the seminal moments of that movie, <laughs> involves a large flowing chocolate river. <laughs> <laughs> now... <laughs> One of those riggers... Hold on, while I got my string and pin board. Must have been having an off day. Yes. <laughs> because midway through filming that chocolate river scene... <laughs> it's all coming together, baby. <laughs> a Panavision lens, the cost of which is estimated to be 540,000 US dollars. Oh, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Literally fell off (laughs) and plopped into the chocolate river. (laughs) Plopped into the chocolate river. Have you been reading my diary? In front of hundreds of cast and crew. (laughs) (laughs) It held up the filming of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory for days. (laughs) And the cost is sort of immeasurable. Whipped out his credit card and had to buy a new kit. Yeah. Why? Because they don't make the lenses anymore? The cost falls into millions. Yeah, and you can't just swap to a different lens halfway through the scene because all of the shots have been shot on that particular lens. No one's going to notice. People notice. It looks weird, man. No one's going to notice. They've all got a different depth of field and shit. And when you're making a movie that expensive, you can't fucking do that. Panavision doesn't know how to make lenses if they've all got it. Nah. So that one dude's fuck up cost like literally millions of dollars and like Tim Burton would have been fucking furious at him. That rocks. Yeah. Just into chocolate. Like one of the most (laughs) expensive (laughs) things that you can ever find on a camera, on a a film set. It's just like, plop. (laughs) 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 Just imagine how that person felt. Just watching that happen and just being like, (laughs) 
I get a feeling that a couple oh. Rigas would have plopped into the chocolate river a couple seconds <laughs> yeah. later. Yeah, so next time you fuck up at work, next time I fuck up at work, I'm going to divide it by how many Panavision <laughs> lenses dropped into a chocolate river it is. Probably feel a lot better about why, myself. Why is it half a million dollars? For the set. Because they're like the most extremely specific lenses that you can get. Right. And like, of course, as you say... Only X amount of them are ever going to be bought or used, so they need to make their money back somehow. Okay, fine. Right? Fine. Like it's they're not worth that money, <laughs> but that's how much they cost. Yeah. So yeah. It reminds me of um when Daft Punk were producing their new album, Random Access Memories. Um, they had that big long ten minute track with Giorgio Moroder, who was like a pioneer of synth dance music that started back in the late seventies or eighties or whatever, and he tell he narrates the track over like a 10 minute long beat that evolves and has all these whirling synths and stuff that grows and grows and grows over 10 minutes while he tells the story of his career through like the 60s 70s 80s 90s and today and when he got into the studio like Daft Punk like weren't there when they were setting up or whatever and the engineer was setting up this rig of mics and so George Yamoroto goes into the vocal booth and there are like five microphones pointing at him and there's like a really old one and a new one and a new one. And, and he asks the engineer, like, what's going on here? And he says, like, oh, these are all like studio mics from like the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s and today. Um, and Giorgio Moroda says, like, that's that's crazy. Can can you hear a difference? And the engineer goes, like, can I hear a difference? No. <laughs> no. No. No one's going to hear it. But they're going to know the difference. Yeah. And so that that's all that matters. <laughs> yeah. I kind of like the idea that, like. Yeah, I, I kind of like that. Just similar, the idea yeah. that it was like, no, they, they're they going to know that it's different and that's all that matters yeah. is that they know that that wasn't felt, that bit of the story wasn't recorded on the 60s ass mic. So they could like hot swap between the microphones. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and I imagine it's a similar sort of thing where like, as I said, you get such diminishing returns. Like there are lenses that you can use to film shit like that that would cost $25,000. And yeah. it's like, well, yeah, is the lens the bottleneck? And like when you're reaching that level of filmmaking, I guess... You're like, fuck it. Maybe the lens <laughs> becomes the bottleneck. It's like, I need to get this shot perfect. And there's this weird like chromatic aberration that you can only see when you blow it up to a cinema-sized screen on these $25,000 yeah. lenses. So we have to spend... $450,000 to buy yeah. these lenses instead. I reckon a lot of it's got to be that audiophile crap where it's like people that spend $4,000 on cables because they're like, you never know. Well, you yeah. You never know. I imagine it is something to do with having to blow it up to, especially if you're on, if you're recording on film, right, which is in theory um, infinite quality or almost. It's like atomic yeah. quality. Um, atomic quality is a good name for a band. Yeah, actually. <laughs> I said it first. <laughs> y- y- you know, when you're filming with lenses that will have s- s- the most imperceptible imperfections, but when yeah. you so you you record that to film and then you adapt it to Blu-ray or Ultra HD or you watch it in 8K, maybe it shows up. Yeah, maybe I don't know. I don't think so because I think you can film much better shit using a you know two thousand dollar camera or whatever. Yeah, but when you've when your production is costing three hundred million dollars, <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, we're not gonna not gonna cheap out on that. Yeah. We'll just cheap out on a scriptwriter instead. <laughs> and then Fuck we'll buy you, another Disney. another five hundred thousand dollar lens to yeah. plop into the chocolate river. <laughs> I'm a big fan of that turn of phrase, <laughs> by the way. I think I'm gonna use it another six times to set. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> I look forward to times four and five. <laughs> Oh, man. Wait till you hear time five. Time five is going to be a real winner. (laughs) (laughs) 
big up in yourself. You better follow yeah. through. <laughs> All right, should we launch into the news then, boy? You ready? Let's do it. Beef Bulletin. News from the James Bond movie this week. Yep. Because, of course, it's another week. And so it's another week of news from James Bond. Imagine being on the media team for this fucking movie. Fuck, there must be like, <laughs> yeah, like a hundred people <laughs> working on the media team. Just their eyes out. Just constantly cranking out new films. Daniel Craig uh, trimmed his pubes. <laughs> what else have we got? Yeah, here we go. So the, the news this week from the James Bond set is that it's had a title announced. Ooh. <laughs> James Bond... Number 25 will be called No Time to Die. That sucks. Directed. No, I don't mind it. No. I don't mind it. <laughs> That's the most 80s action hero bullshit. Yeah, sorry. Did I did I stutter? The new James Bond movies. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't mind it. I think it sounds great. No Time to Die. Oh, baby. I'm very excited for it. Man, it's coming out on the 3rd of April, 2020. Uh, it'll be great. It'll be great. Directed by you Carrie. keep saying it enough, it'll come true. <laughs> Directed by Carrie Fukunaga. I can I only like assume guy. it's going to be Daniel Craig's last movie. <laughs> not just not just his last James Bond. Yeah. Just his last oh, right, movie. No, yeah, no, they're going <laughs> to shoot him in the head. Yeah, fuck this. <laughs> uh, there's not much other news we have about it other than the fact that it's coming out in April of 2020 and it's called No Time to Die. Mm. Um, the font looks weird. It's like the font Art does Deco. Yeah, it looks like a stencil kind of thing. Right, yeah. It's a bit weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's that's news from the James Bond set this week. Mm-hmm. Just close all those tabs. Yeah, there's only two news stories, but 37 of them were <laughs> James Bond related. Mm. Yep. Uh. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Hugh Grant Read the news newsy <laughs> Hugh Grant thinks Paddington 2 might be the best film of his career mm. that's nice isn't it apparently it's yeah I think because he was getting rinsed for this shit yeah like oh my god yeah and he's then like, he, how far I, I think is he, he came back and was like it's a really good movie <laughs> it is a good movie yeah it's great I haven't seen it but apparently it's just genuinely really great so. yeah um, I'm quoting here from Screen Rant who says that there was a um there was an event at the Golden Globes where he presented the best foreign language film and was introduced as the star of Paddington 2 and Twitter was like derisively being like, oh God, how far is he like, how far has he fallen that now he's in Paddington 2? Like, you're just going to age better. That or Love yeah. Actually? Well, I think Love Actually is a very good movie, but <laughs> I'll defend that till I die. It's probably not be good, but I enjoy it. Um, <laughs> um, and he said that was Mark particularly mode. annoying because he thinks that, it, he says, quote, I genuinely believe it may be the best film I've been in. Uh, it's a very good movie. Mm. Have you seen it? No, man. You've people aren't saying it ironically. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Sincerely, I don't like, believe it. Paddington Two is so good. Gotta watch Paddington <laughs> One first. I don't think you do. No, I know it was a joke. I'm not gonna do either. <laughs> oh, no, you gotta watch it. <laughs> there was an iconic movie that came out in 1969, nice. starring Dennis Hopper, Jack Nicholson, and Peter Fonda, called Easy Rider. Uh was all about uh, two motorcyclists going from LA to New Orleans for Mardi Gras uh, after a profitable drug deal, reading straight from Screen Rant here. Um, It became one of the biggest films of the late 60s. It was written by 
Dennis Hopper and screenwriter Terry Southern. It was nominated for Oscars from the 70s, and it was a real turning point and a cultural sort of milestone, apparently, for the development of like more non-mainstream kind of cinema leaving the golden age of Hollywood. It's kind of vaguely relevant to the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood movie that we're going to discuss later and the Manson murders and that kind of thing, which is why I'm mentioning it. (laughs) On top of the fact that its star, Peter Fonda, died in the last week or two Mm. since we recorded the last episode. Um, I thought it was worth mentioning, if only because this is the episode where we're talking about the cultural events around that movie and that kind of development in Hollywood. Mm. Um, I listened to a podcast all about the Manson murders that I might have mentioned on the podcast recently called You Must Remember This. It's a podcast all about Hollywood, but they did like an eight-part series a little while ago about Charles Manson. Check it in the description. I'll try and remember to, yeah. If you look up You Must Remember This and search through episodes for the ones about Manson, um, they had like an eight-part series all about the Manson killings that's so interesting. And it talks about all the different political and social, cultural uh, events that happened around the period of 1969 in LA. Like, it talked a lot about, like, what it was like in the film industry and what it was like to be young then and what it was like to be left-wing or right-wing then and what it was like to live in LA then and all the different events that sort of culminated in the Charles Manson murders and about how all those things meant that they were really influential and what was sort of happening in society at the time and why that meant that it was a big deal. And Easy Rider gets a big mention in that as being this huge staple of like late 60s alternative culture in Hollywood. I listened to the first episode, not the whole thing, but yeah. my impression was that it was way less like a true crime podcast and more like a um, sociological history yeah. podcast. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so it's, it's not like a, I'm not a huge fan of true crime. Yeah, but it's not. It's really not a crime podcast. That. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's not like here's what how Manson instructed people to kill people. It's like what was relevant in the cultural, greater cultural context, which makes it far more interesting. I think that's what's interesting. This is about a billion podcasts yeah. talking about how Manson killed people. Exactly. I haven't listened to the rest of this and any of the other episodes this podcast has done, but the the, epi- the series they did on Manson series, was really interesting yeah. because they talked about yeah, it was like it was more like a history and a culture and a society podcast. Mm more than it was about the actual events. And they like like they, they did a whole episode on the career of one of the Beach Boys who ended up becoming friends with Charles Manson mm. and all this weird shit that happened. And interesting that the week we're doing the podcast is the week where this Peter guy Fonda died. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there you go. Excelsior Peter Fonda. Mm-hmm. Disney Plus has set a launch date and prices for its Netflix killer in Australia, Great. says the Canberra Times. Um, in Australian dollars, <laughs> man, us. yeah, in Australian dollars, man, it's going to be nine dollars a month. Yeah, was that? I I feel like we already knew that. I didn't know that. Idiot. It's gonna, <laughs> it's gonna have, of course, all the Disney movies and the Marvel movies and all the Pixar movies and all that shit on its streaming. I think it's Does gonna it have be all of the Spider-Man movies. <laughs> 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 Funny you say that. Listeners, um, that's foreshadowing. <laughs> how's this for We Live in Hell, boy? Um, we live in Hell, boy. We live inside the spleen of Hell, boy. Um, US customers will be able to bundle Disney+, Plus, ESPN+, Plus, and Hulu for $20 a month. So now we're just bundling streaming services. It's a good thing cable television doesn't. I was about to say, <laughs> wow, I'm getting a weird sense of deja vu about this. <laughs> and next, we'll be able to buy a Netflix box that'll let us watch Yay. these channels attached to our television. 
I said we're the little piggies, there. and they just keep Ooh, tricking was that, us. Was that a deliberate? Was that a deliberate turn of phrase? No, why? Oh, for the yeah, that's Ooh. also foreshadowing. There yes. you go. And Netflix is gonna cut us open and smear <laughs> our blood all over the walls. <laughs> and right, eight ninety nine a month. Yeah. Dust those guillotines off, people. Let's 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 give it another go. <laughs> For real. Um, how's this? Jason Momoa says he won't be doing Aquaman two because he got run over by a bulldozer. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm listening. Did you? Absolutely. Um, this is actually the only thing that would have made me more interested in that story is if you said he got run over by a dolphin. <laughs> <laughs> Bob begging him to stop. Yeah. Um, Jason. What the fuck Ma- happened? <laughs> okay, you'll actually love this. So they want to build a new 30 meter telescope, is the name of the thing. They want to build the 30 meter telescope uh, on top of a volcano in Hawaii. And Jason Momoa. Where is this going? <laughs> Jason Momoa was tied up in protesting the construction of this telescope. Oh, shit. Because he, he is Hawaiian. Yeah, yeah. Um, He's so he says it says here. Sorry, Warner Brothers, we can't shoot Aquaman two because Jason just got run over by a bulldozer trying to stop the desecration of his native land. <laughs> what a fucker! <laughs> yeah, that man's getting in the way of profit. <laughs> I think it's like a tongue in cheek. I don't know. If that's literally what literally what happened. But you know, he's he's, he's mean, busy in Hawaii. You know, it might just be like sharing the you know publicity for the protest about Jason. My mom oh, was yeah. here. And yeah, 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 yeah. Um, no, I I know what you mean. Yeah, uh, The Rock and Jason Momoa have both spoken out against this telescope. Mm. Good on them, I say. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose. Well, I'm generally... A a telescope seems like about the least harmful thing I've heard native land used for. Yeah, but but it'll be a big building. It'll be something terrible to do with the... Yeah, exactly. I think if I can observe it. No, we we could build it... A hundred kilometers to the left or right, yeah. and it would be totally fine. But we're not doing. I it. don't know enough about it, but I yeah. imagine that it might be similar to like we're going to build a telescope on top of Uluru. What do you reckon? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like I'm assuming that the people whose background resides there yeah. are in the right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Robert De Niro's company files for a lawsuit against the ex-employee who binged Netflix while working. Yeah, she watched like <laughs> I read about this. She watched. Like five seasons of Friends in four <laughs> days or some <laughs> shit like that. <laughs> Very now, good shit. If you actually read into this story, she also embezzled millions of dollars. Darn. But the real headlines <laughs> were that she spent her time <laughs> watching Netflix. All I got to say to Robert is, come on. <laughs> That's a boss fucking move. What, like, what are you going to do about it? Not just embezzling the money, but also like <laughs> being a, a total fucking... Dropkick while you're on the job. <laughs> the lawsuit says so that good. <laughs> the lawsuit says that uh, Robinson watched 55 episodes of Friends in a four-day period. That's it. Also watched another 20 episodes of Arrested Development, 10 episodes of Shit's Creek <laughs> during another five working days. God damn! Oh, when they say man. watched, was it like on in the background while she was embezzling money or what? Like, <laughs> or was she actively sitting there? <laughs> Watching fixated it. Fixated on it. She also used three million of Robert De Niro's frequent flyer yeah. miles. <laughs> Fuck yeah. <laughs> I am I'm a hundred percent on her side. He's just he's just mad because he was saving them up. Yeah, yeah. He wanted yeah, to get away. Like, Sorry man, there's no way we could get away. <laughs> what the fuck? Due to her seniority in the company, Robertson was in a position to approve her own expenses. Fuck yes. <laughs> 
God, what the fuck happened? It sounds like she was reasonably well established, and she just was playing. Here's what happened: <laughs> she was playing the long game, baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yeah. It's like a $6 million lawsuit. Too. Currently, the suit is seeking repayment of all cash, goods, and frequent file files. Four days worth of Netflix value as well. It says, however, the hours logged into Netflix are irretrievable. <laughs> the hours? <laughs> Fuck. Oh, man. That's extremely good shit. Uh, a recent survey has revealed that 37% of employees have watched Netflix at work. Fuck. In what, general, or what, of, of this all company? employees? Yeah, what if it's just of this company? That rocks. No, I think it just means in general. Yeah, anyway, wow. They didn't ask me. Uh, Disney executives reckon that Jojo Rabbit, Taika Waititi's new film where he stars as Adolf Hitler, might alienate Disney fans. <laughs> yeah, it will alienate the Nazi Disney fans. Yeah, yeah. God. Um, I just like the, the balls on this Disney executive of thinking like, no, people are still fans of Disney. Like, oh, right. people are going to go and watch every Disney <laughs> movie. Say, people are still fans of Hitler, and we <laughs> can't alienate those. Yeah. Like, yeah. Just just the egotistical idea of like, yeah, sure, if you release a new Disney animated movie, people yeah. are fans of that. I'm a but fan no one's of like, the company. Oh, great. This live action movie is produced by Disney. I love Disney. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, I think in uh, general, the bigger you get, the less people like you. Like, also, it's a Fox Searchlight movie. It's not like a fucking yeah. Disney. It's not Aladdin. Disney Pixar. Yeah, yeah dickhead. Exactly. It just that that exactly illustrates what type of bubble that person must live in, where he thinks that the name Disney still means something. It's like, man, whatever. Well, I think it depends. Like even Disney the Pixar good does. shit that Walt Disney used to fucking yeah. No, Pixar means something. Disney doesn't mean fucking shit. No, I mean I don't know. Disney if, if means Disney... the same thing as like KPMG. It's know. like who <laughs> the fuck cares? Yeah, if Disney came out with a new animated movie. Like, you know, the Lion King kind of shit. Yeah. Like, did you get a new anime? That would be a dramatic be, change of to, character to me, for that company recently. To me, yeah. To me, that would be a Disney movie. Yeah. But I don't think that, like, oh, Cheaper by the Dozen 3. Great. A new Disney movie's come out. Well, no. It just doesn't mean anything anymore because they've bought so much shit that their name is just in the background. Yeah, and that's everything. what their aim exactly. is. If they're aiming to become one of those, like, giant conglomerate companies where just they just make money and that's all they do. But yeah. they make money because they own so much other shit that you actually give a shit about the name of. So, yeah, the name Disney is just going to become, like, one of those acronyms that doesn't fucking mean anything. Yeah. Um, Huge news this week is that Lana Wachowski, one of the original directors of the Matrix trilogy, has announced that Matrix 4 is officially going ahead with Keanu Reeves, who obviously played Neo, and Carrie Ann Moss, who played Trinity. Oh, and Carrie Ann Moss. Reprising their roles. Ah, now what does that mean? Okay. What do you mean, what does that mean? Because they might have, have a fucking cameo. Oh, I suppose that's a good point. Like yeah, that I doesn't didn't mean anything, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's okay. That's bullshit marketing. Well, no. well uh, what else could they say? I suppose they could say, they are the main characters in the movie. Literally, yeah, yes. They're reprising their roles. I would say, like, starring or something like that if they were, like, in the... Yeah, they're reprising their roles. I'm guessing that means that they I didn't think it's a, a good play point. a very minor role. But also, I would have thought that would be what you'd want, right? You'd want a brand new original story in the Matrix universe, and if Neo has a cameo, then awesome. Yeah, which should be incredible, because, spoiler alert, Neo doesn't make it. <laughs> so, Does he not? I don't really know. No, he dies. He gets, like, absorbed into the Matrix. Oh, I forgot that. By the I, fucking I, robots. I only ever saw the first one. I had too many guitar lessons during the yeah, okay. So, yeah, so Sorry to spoil, <laughs> spoil that for you, then. Damn. It's like, he doesn't die explicitly, like, die, die. He, it's sort of this big symbolic thing where he his, his right. consciousness, like, 
Oh, uh, maybe he does die, die. I don't remember. But the point is, whatever happens, he doesn't fucking make it. So whatever this this character is, either not the same Neo as we know, or it is like a prequel, or it happens midway through, and it's a part that we didn't really get. But I feel like the yeah. Matrix movies were told back to back, so I don't really think there was much like time that we could have been exposed to. Yeah, it's weird. Hey, well, yeah. I mean, uh, interestingly, so uh, Lana was saying, Lana Wachowski was saying. Many of the ideas that Lily and I explored 20 years ago about our reality are even more relevant now, and she's happy to be exploring these characters in that world again. And it definitely kind of is, right? Yeah. All like the machines and computers controlling stuff. more of our yeah. life, and like uh, all of politics and shit being influenced by computers and the internet, and like that. It's really interesting to see <laughs> their spin on actually it. living in hell. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it actually does go ahead. I'd be really curious to see what they say. This ties in with the last bit of news we have. Um, first bit here is that Spider-Man Far From Home is Sony's highest grossing film ever. Yep. It's already made a billion dollars and it's the only Spider-Man movie that's ever done that. So it is the highest grossing Spider-Man movie of all time at the worldwide box office and also the highest grossing Sony thing. So you would have thought, right, if you're, if you're a director at Sony, if you're in charge of their film industry there you'd bend over backwards and you'd really want to work with marvel to obviously because obviously sony owns the rights to maybe not obviously sony does own the rights to spider-man for whatever weird reason yeah and they've been sort of working together with marvel to get marvel associated with these new star spider-man movies working their absolute dicks off so to make sure that they have a place in the avengers Spider-Man's in the Avengers. Of course, he always will be in the Avengers. He's going to be in movies for years to come. Yeah, that's why they made him come back. Mutually beneficial for both companies. (laughs) Marvel Studios no longer involved in Spider-Man movies. (laughs) Fuck me. I love this. Uh, I'm going to read again straight from Screaming here. After Sony tried and failed to launch their own Spider-Man shared universe with the Amazing Spider-Man franchise with uh, Andrew Garfield movies, the studio struck an unprecedented deal with Marvel Studios which allowed Peter Parker to become part of a highly popular Marvel Cinematic Universe. Tom Holland then came out uh, swinging as the character yeah, as the new Spider-Man in 2016's Captain America Civil War. He's done the, he's, he's played the character four more times including in a couple of his standalone films. Of course, as we just said, Far From Home did very, very well for itself. Spider-Man, a twink um, abroad. But now <laughs> uh, but now, the little spider twink will no longer <laughs> grace our screens in the Marvel films. Absolutely wonderful to see just yeah. things crumbling in on themselves. <laughs> Fuck. Um, I really unironically love this. They wanted a co-financing deal where Disney and Sony 50-50 finance the Spider-Man movies. Um, Who wanted that? Disney or Sony? Disney wanted Sony to pay for half of all the Spider-Man movies. (laughs) Half. Yeah. Uh, Sony, apparently they had a deal that had been ongoing, which I guess wasn't that deal, where Sony, I imagine, might have been paying less. (laughs) Um, Yeah. and Disney was like, no, we're not keeping the current deal. Yeah, you're gonna we're going to get you up. to need to pay $3 trillion every week. <laughs> exactly. Um, the conspiracy theory online is, of course, that this has been announced and has been kicked up as a fucking 
tragedy online, but Spider-Man's being killed off from the Avengers just so that there can be like publicity against both studios online and they can like drum up. What, uh, yeah, I, I was reading a, a fair bit of shit that indicated that this was Disney's power move against Sony to just be like, we're trying to work with them and they just don't want to pony up the cash. And yeah. it fucking worked because people are now angry at them. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'd be curious to know what the deal was before about whether Sony was like, no, you were paying for the whole... It's our fucking character. You want to use him. You pay yeah, us. Yeah, you pay a licensing fee. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I don't know. This definitely... I don't know enough about it, but... It sure seems like Disney might be taking advantage of a situation here where it's like, well, now, oh. now that the now that I wonder <laughs> now that this character is like hugely popular, we'll just try and see if we can wrangle more money out of them because yeah. what are you going to do? Cancel the new Spider-Man yeah. movies? I think it seems a little bit like Dracula didn't have any more blood left in the corpse and <laughs> was like, I'm going to need you to make more blood, and the corpse oh, is like, don't know if I can do that, bro, and the, the Fucking vampire is just like, ah, this isn't going to work out for me then. And the corpse and then is just like... what did the corpse like, say? Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> uh, I guess I'll just uh, try to make my own blood. <laughs> well, on that bombshell, <laughs> I think that's all the news I've got for today. I've got another 15 tabs open, but I <laughs> yeah, think fuck. I'm going to skip a lot of those. Yep, sounds um, good. <laughs> there's been a news about some sort of weird court case... Uh, with one of the screenwriters of 21 Jump Street that was awarded like half a billion dollars in damages from something. Tab for that won't load because my internet's fucked. So, sorry. Oh, Um, yeah, I had to disconnect and reconnect from your internet. Yeah, fuck. You're Uh, bragging about this Wi-Fi, but it only works half the time. Yeah, but when it does work, oh, boy. (laughs) Oh, boy. You got (laughs) to load that content twice as fast to make up for it, bro. Um... Uh, first pick from a new from the new David Bowie biopic has been released. I don't really know how I feel about this movie, considering uh, his you family have Bowie. outright come out and said, "Do not watch this movie. It doesn't have our support. They oh, yeah. don't have rights for any of our music." I'd be very curious to see how they do a David Bowie movie without David Bowie music. What are they going to have pastiche bullshit or what? <laughs> That'd be hilarious. I don't know. It's I'm like interested. <laughs> David Bowie pastiche shit. Um, <laughs> I did David Bowie, but the whole soundtrack is Queen music. <laughs> <laughs> David Bowie, but all they could clear the rights to was like Paul Simon and Green. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A David Bowie biopic, but Green Day did the whole <laughs> soundtrack. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> is there a life on Mars? No, 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 not covers. <laughs> Proprietary. <laughs> new, new compositions. I feel like if anyone hears the name David Bowie and then goes to see a movie and there's no David Bowie music... That would be wild. Everyone is yeah, going to be No David Bowie music. It's like, that's what you care about, right? His character development? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I care weird, about who he was. This weird motherfucker who literally pretended to be a fucking cartoon character No, dickhead. You care about life on Mars. That's why the TV show wasn't called David <laughs> Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> it's an obscure TV show called Life on Mars. Obscure life, TV show, a brilliant TV show. What do you reckon? I think it's about all the news we got, hey? Yeah, I don't know. You're the one with the 15 oh, yeah. or so times. I'm the open. one with the news. <laughs> all right, well, how about we jump into talking about our film for the week, which yeah. is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So we've had some uh, some listener feedback that we prattle on for too long, <laughs> <laughs> as, we, as we mentioned up the top. So let's try and do... Like a quick-ass review. Yep. Like a review review about whether or not, if you have not seen this film, yeah. it's worth going and seeing. One thing I wish I knew before I saw this movie. I have been watching a lot of interviews and reviews about What's this movie. What's sex like? 
<laughs> uh, I've been watching a lot of interviews <laughs> and reviews for this film over the week because when I watched it, I came out feeling a little cold. And I thought, like, I don't really know if I liked that. And the more interviews and analysis and reviews I watched about it, the more I sort of convinced myself, like, no, that was really good. Mm. And I think what put me off it initially was I went in expecting it to be like a crazy Kill Bill style Quentin Tarantino action movie. I suppose because I was going all in on learning all about the Manson murders and all this shit, and I thought there's so much fodder there for like for like a gore fest. Yeah, I got a theory about that, and I yeah, and I was expecting that, and so at every turn and in every scene, even if it didn't make contextual sense in the film, I was expecting it to go crazy. Maybe not even consciously, but I sort of caught myself later being annoyed at a lot of the quiet contemplative scenes in the film just because I was waiting for them to kick off and get crazy at every moment and they sort of never did because the film is quite a quiet laid back chilled out emotional journey I think well it doesn't it doesn't never do it it's yeah it ramps it's, up it's different to his yeah, other stuff exactly right it, it, it's fair to say it ramps up at some point but a lot of the film was quite quiet and laid back and relaxed and it's more of a character study about Leo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt I almost wanted to go back and watch it again just knowing that I didn't have to wait like on tender hooks for the whole film because it's coming and don't worry about it, but just enjoy the scenes. Enjoy the quiet, enjoy the slow pace. Because uh, I really enjoyed it. I think looking back on it and sort of thinking, looking at it in that light, I think it's a really great film and it's really worth seeing. Yeah, I think this is a real slow burner of a film, mm. um, which is really unusual because Tarantino's normal form has been to spend sort of the first half of the film setting up to burn the last half to the ground, you know? And that's yeah. not what this movie does. I think it's actually better for it, and I think it's one of his most... I mean, he's a skilled filmmaker, and uh, no matter what, your foibles with him, um, you can't really fault that. He's popular for, for good reasons. But I, I feel like this is actually his most mature film in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. And it's his most nuanced, I think. And... It's the one that's the most like considered, uh, and it spends the most time really exploring the characters, not just kind of going through the journey of those characters, but really exploring what it means to DiCaprio and Pitt's characters to be involved in that story, and what what their personal journey of that is. Right. Yeah. So you take Kill Bill, like that's a character study of Uma Thurman's character. But it's not really a character it's study. It's really more about the revenge and the action. And it's about and what, what she does, not what yeah. happens to her character. Right. right. Exactly. You can sort of explain her motivations for it, but it's re- it's really about this, the action scene. She doesn't exhibit a whole lot of like personal growth. It's not about like what she learns and how she changes no. or how she really comes to grips with what happens. She's got nice feet, though. No. Well. <laughs> 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 Did you see Quentin run through the room? <laughs> um but yeah, this is this is definitely a film that takes its time to really linger on the personal struggles and internal struggles, not external struggles of the characters that are in it. Yeah, and absolutely. I, I think yeah, in, in, I reckon that the reason why they spent so much time on in, in there was a lot of marketing of this film pitched a, a, about like the first thing that we heard about it was that it's about the Manson murders, and it is, 
but that's it's kind of set at the same time as the Manson murders. Yeah. I think that maybe I try I deliberately avoided a lot of the marketing for this film because I wanted to know as little about it as possible. And I think I sort of latched on to the fact that Charles Manson's in the movie and thought to myself, it's about the Manson murders. I'm sure if I go back and look at the trailers, they probably don't pitch it like that. I think they and did. It's kind of not. I mean, I th- I think they sort of did. They pitched it about it was about Sharon. Well, Tate. Sharon Tate's in it, right? And it was yeah. about so we sort of hear okay, it's about Manson and it's about Sharon Tate, and you're like, well, I know what happens to her. I think it's easy to see Sharon Tate's in it and think it's about Sharon Tate, but it's kind of not. And I think it's interesting to sort of look at it from that lens because it's really about the fictional characters and the fictional buddy cop kind of best friend relationship that Quentin Tarantino has set up and constructed within his 1960s LA. And it's sort of against the backdrop of history, but really it's all about his characters and his sort of fictional scenario that he's sort of set up and lets play out. That's a big element of it, but it it, it runs on this, this film also runs on a few levels. um, And I think that's one of them. Where the the others are are sort of looking at, I mean, the title "Once Upon a Time in Hollywood." Like, yeah. um, this also similarly to his other movies plays around with that nonlinear storytelling. It plays around with speculative fiction, uh, which is something that he has explored before in *Inglorious Bastards, Bastards* and *Django Unchained*. Um, so it's sort of a coalescing of a bunch of different things that he's tried, but in a really different way to how he's done them before. Yeah, and it's it's about the the nature of Hollywood at the time, the personality and the embodiment of what Hollywood meant. And he distills these characters down into, he sort of takes aspects of that time and aspects of that place and that zeitgeist. And he distills those aspects down into specific characters, in some cases, Sharon Tate, or in some cases, fictional characters. And then he uses the journeys of those characters to examine aspects of those aspects, which is really interesting. And I think it takes a lot of skill. I think in some ways, Tarantino's other films can be very two-dimensional. And I feel in a lot of ways, this is his most sort very, of th- they're three-dimensional They're very exaggerated film. often. And like, I suppose... It, yeah, in a car- very, caricaturish. Yeah, right. And so then this is the first film, one of the first films I've seen from him that has a lot of emotional depth to it. Mm. I agree. Um, Almost uh, a third I dimension. <laughs> I wouldn't say a third dimension. <laughs> Sorry, which one's depth? <laughs> um, no, I watched. A oh, couple I was thinking of, of emotional width. <laughs> I watched a couple of really good interviews with Tarantino during the week, where he was sort of talking very right, thoughtfully then. about this film. He mentioned the fact that he grew up and his childhood was spent growing up in Hollywood in the late sixties, mm. and so he has a lot of childhood memories of exactly the kind of shit that's pictured in this Uh-oh. movie, <laughs> and so. He's, oh no, he, he talks about the idea. One of the journalists was, for example, asking him about the radio station that's always playing in the car and stuff. And he says, Yeah, I remember listening to that radio station when I was a kid. And it was a constant soundtrack to everything we were doing. And if you didn't like the song, you'd leave it on. And mm. you'd, you'd, you'd talk over the ads and you wouldn't turn it down. And that would just be this constant soundtrack to your whole life. When you're in the car, when you're at home, you'd turn them on the radio as well. And so you'd have like these DJs and this sort of taste of music and everything that would just sort of be like a narration. A pe- he said it was like a period narrator for the whole, for his whole, your whole life. Right. And he says he got the actual studio tapes from that radio station and the <laughs> DJs that play in the car and on the radio. This is probably like a, a cool Tarantino thing more than anything else, but like they're the actual DJs and the ads that are played on the radio for soap and for shit like that and tanning oil or actual ads right. that were played on the radio station in the 1969 
kind of time period. Mm. And he talked a lot about how, like, they really recreated uh, L.A. streets in L.A. and sort of built them up to look like the 1960s. And he said that, like, he thinks this is probably one of the last movies that would ever be able to do that, considering all the developments that are happening in L.A. at the moment and, like, how much money he's got behind him to be able to really shoot that and not just have green screen everywhere. But the most important thing was that he said he, he, he... He's put this film up out there as his memory piece in the same way as he thinks that Roma film was for Alfonso Cuaron, um, the Mexican director, because he says, like, yeah, it, it might not be a very strictly faithful recreation of Hollywood in 1969. Thank you for the praise that you're giving me of saying it is, but he says it's really just his fond memory of it and his sort of piecing together. And so you it just reminded me what you're saying about him sort of exaggerating parts of it and bringing up parts of it that fit the emotional narrative that he's trying to portray and sort of suppressing other parts of it Mm. that might not necessarily fit in with his narrative. And it all comes down to this sort of emotional childhood connection that he has to California and Hollywood and of movie making in general. And as I said, I think the cleverness of this film doesn't just come from being able to portray that as a setting. It comes from making the characters that, you know, and so you get to see not only do you have this lived experience of these characters on screen, but those characters sort of are his fond memories put down into people. And he thought, if this person was this setting, what would they do faced with this situation? And the situation that I suppose they're faced with, which gets to, let's stop sort of circling whatever the the actual kind of purpose of this movie is. (laughs) I think think this might be frustrating for people who haven't seen it yet. The, the, The purpose of the film is to follow the journey of a struggling... Or an an actor whose career, I suppose, is in decline. He never quite made it big. The film sort of shows him as an actor who was in a a popular TV show, one or two reasonably popular action movies in the 50s and the early 60s and is sort of in decline now, Mm. yeah. So that's Leonardo DiCaprio. He really wants to be... It's not quite clear exactly what he wants to be, right? Because he sort of always struggles because he he was in stuff where he was famous and he is recognisable and he is a big name. Yeah. But he's not happy about that. And then he's got the opportunity to go over and act in huge Italian spaghetti westerns and he's sort of isn't particularly happy about being able to do that either. So it's not about the fame and notoriety. He actually, I think, fundamentally wants to create great art, yeah, he's, but he's has never for, managed to do he, that. He's looking for more integrity, exactly. Yeah. And he's, sort of, he's struggling to come to grips with the fact that he's, he's struggling to hold on to his place in the world mm. and his high, top-tier actor kind of street cred in a world that's very rapidly changing as alternative culture and popular music is completely changing and the political landscape is completely changing. And sort of the journey that Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Rick Dalton, is going on as he sort of finds the cultural landscape in which he could be a huge star being completely torn out from under him. So Rick Dalton's journey kind of represents the whole transformation of America in the late 60s mm. in California. And especially Hollywood. Absolutely. And that ties in very strongly to the way in which things changed politically, culturally, and in lots of different ways when the Manson killings happened in LA. Around that time. Around yeah. that time. It was. It's kind of like a coming of age and loss of innocence kind of story for America, for Rick Dalton, and for society at large, kind of. And I guess he is sort of the main character. It's sort of, he vies for that, I suppose, with uh, 
with Brad Pitt's yeah, character, so it's him Cliff and Brad Booth, Pitt, who is his stunt man, his stunt double. And yeah, so exactly. that, that that relationship in itself ties back to like an an, a, an older lost period of Hollywood, mm. where you'd have an actor and a stunt man be a pair that would go from studio to studio and work on all their movies together. Right. Where like an actor had on had enough influence to be able to have this is my stunt man, mm. and we're a traveling team, and we're partners, and we're in all the movies together. Whereas now I can't imagine that that would happen very frequently. To no. Like, this is a stunt man, you're fucking given fuck you. If um, anything, I would imagine that the studio would have the stuntmen that they trusted, and yeah, you right. would just sort of make them look and, like someone else. Yeah, and you see, you see that by the fact that Brad Pitt's character is now Leonardo DiCaprio's kind of driver slash handyman gopher slash where, best friend on a salary. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Like Brad Pitt's character is Cliff Booth, and Cliff says like that he hasn't really worked full time as a stuntman for years, and all he really does now is drive Rick Dalton around and fix shit around his house. And yeah, and then. Uh, so I guess those are the two, those are the two main main characters. mainest characters. The whole film is kind of about their bromance and about like them coming to terms with losing their place in the industry, mm. and almost as a complicating condition, the Manson murders and Margot Robbie's Sharon Tate fit into that. So yeah, yeah I think that that probably sort of ties up the summary of the film that we can get into before we start properly dissecting what happens, I guess. Yeah. Um, as we've been saying, I think it's Tarantino's most complicated film. It lends itself really well to multiple viewings. I think with a lot of sort of this doesn't this movie doesn't have a big twist, right? But I think with a lot of twist movies, you want to go back and watch it again to see the signs. I want to go back and watch this movie again, not to see the signs, but to look at it through a different lens and yeah. to, to watch it again thinking, I didn't think this was the movie that it was when I watched it the first time. So I want to watch it again now that I know what type of film it is and, enjoy and look for a different thing. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so it's not like you will miss stuff. He's not trying to trick you the first time. It's just that if you know who Tarantino is before you go in and watch this, and especially if you're expecting a film about murder... This, this is not that film. I think that's what kind of ruined it for me at the start. Yeah. Exactly. And I think it's not the film that a lot of people thought it was. And I do think it sits with you. And I do think you sort of need to brood on it a little bit. Um, yeah. Especially if you're going in expecting another version of Hateful Eight or yeah. another version of Kill Bill. Well, it's really or something interesting like as Tarantino's ninth film because he's famously said several times that he's getting old. He, he said in interviews for this film, he doesn't want to direct, do the writing, directing movies thing mm. after he's 60. He doesn't want to yeah. do any writing, directing of movies after he's done 10 movies. He said he doesn't want to keep doing it because he doesn't notice how to stop. He wants to have 10 films and then be done. And like that's mm. his unified creative statement. And he goes out on a bang kind mm. of thing. And so Interesting. Is, as one of his last movies, you can kind of see that it's kind of fitting that he, him telling the story of the dying breaths of the golden age of Hollywood and these older actors sort of dying out in the film industry is kind of a reflection of maybe how he feels as like as he is sort of winding up his time in the film industry. Yeah. And so a lot of the film has this very warm, contemplative kind of tone to it where you have these two guys that would just sit on the couch for 10 minutes and have a conversation about what it was like in the old days and how they're feeling about getting older and how they're feeling about not having as much work anymore and about how society's moving and they talk about all the fucking hippies on the street there's a really great scene where they just watch tv and the shot is just of the tv 
while they're talking shop at it and like talking about all the shots. Yeah, yeah, looking yeah. At all the stunts that are happening on the like and CSI type show they're watching. It, it feels a little bit like that dynamic would have been present in his earlier films, but instead of them talking about what they're talking about in this film, they'd be talking about like uh, what do you what do they call a quarter pounder in Europe? Conversation from Pulp Fiction comes yeah. to mind, where it's menial conversation. Whereas in this, the setting feels the same and the dynamic feels the same, but instead that they're, they're talking about kind of much more complex social issues, personal yeah. issues that affect them. Sometimes. Sometimes they are just talking about what's going on on the television. Yeah. yeah. So I think bottom line, this is absolutely worth your time. I actually think you're it's a lot more of fun likely... As well, oh, yeah. It sounds, so like, it much sounds fun. like it's a bummer. There's, there's loads of funny scenes. No, there's it's just his most thoughtful film. Yeah, exactly. So the, I think I think in addition to the normal Tarantino stuff that you get, mm. there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that sort of adds depth to it. I, th- I think also the most refined version of what Tarantino does. It I seems... So, yeah. I, I would describe this film as actually extremely elegant in a way. Yeah. Um, which I wouldn't have said about Tarantino's other stuff. Normally, he's very brutal, you know? Yeah. And I think this film has moments of brutality, uh, but they are very used very sparingly in a way that I feel like his previous films have never really done. I think so, yeah. Mm. So I think it's uh, definitely worth your time. Um, I was going to say, I think it's probably the... If you're not normally a Tarantino fan or you haven't really gone in on this shit... This is easily um, his most accessible film. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's a real... It's saying something that it's his most accessible, but also his most kind of balanced and yeah. Um, I don't know. I keep chugging the same words at it, but thoughtful and yeah. And yeah. Well, it kind of reminds me of what I think Hateful Eight was trying to go for, where Hateful Eight was really slow and very brooding, but it kind of bored. It's still two dimensional. Like there was nothing to it, whereas mm. this feels like it had that exact same chilled out, slow kind of tone, but it also. Every scene meant something. Every scene was really good, and every scene was actually had some substance to it right. that I think was missing from Hateful Eight. I feel I'm like literally Hateful just Eight. Watching someone slowly make coffee for eight minutes, I'm like, fine, this is whatever. I think what that was meant to be doing was in Hateful Eight. The entire point of that was to build tension and for you to be like, when is this powder keg going to explode? Whereas this movie's yeah. not trying to do that, so you don't and get that sense of like tension being built. Right, and I think that's kind of one of the things that's a bit off-putting if you don't know that nothing there's there's no huge payoff coming every third scene or whatever mm. is that like it almost feels like it's building tension and it's building and building and building and not actually going anywhere and I think part of the reason why and it's it, maybe this is intentional or otherwise I'm sure that he kind of must have been aware that people know what his films are by now but I, I imagine he knew that people were going to be expecting that from him and sort of thinking yeah. about like when is the when is the Tarantino going to kick in you know, and it it does, but not in the way that you would expect. And so you are left with this feeling of constant tension, but you're, what you're actually feeling is a lack of tension being intentionally built. Yeah. And that's also unnerving in a different way. So I think a lot of people might have felt weird about that. Um, but when you think about it in the context of the film and you don't hold his other films in the same light and try to make a direct comparison of like, well, he didn't do... What he normally does, yeah. it's like, yeah, he didn't do what he normally does. That's fine. Yeah. He did something different and arguably better, I think. Yeah. So I think this is this might be my favorite Tarantino overall. It's it some things I prefer. I I usually like his more simple ones. Like my favorite Tarantino before this probably would have been Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he uh, man, this one really knocks it out of the park. 
and it doesn't really sound like we're speaking emphatically about it, I suppose. But I think that's just because we both, like, it left us both with a really strange yeah, feeling really afterwards. But yeah. I really liked it. And I think um, it's worth, definitely worth going and seeing. I, I think, think it's so, a yeah. really, really, really good film that just needs a little bit of, like, a little bit of care and thought when you're going and seeing it and don't yeah. go in with any expectations. I yeah. think this film would have been better if you didn't know that it was about the Manson murders or didn't think that it was about the Manson murders. And I think that's probably my fault because I was, I really think that's an interesting story. I reckon it was America. the marketing of the film, man. Yeah. I reckon they I know that people expect Tarantino brutality and they knew, I, I, I thought Manson, I assumed Manson was going to be a main character. Yeah. Right, I thought this was going to be well, should right. We, should we give a spoiler a spoiler warning for a start? Then if, I think that's probably all we've got to say. If you haven't seen the movie, and you don't want to see it. If you care about not knowing anything about the movie, this is probably where we'll leave you. I'll see mm. you later. Mm. Well, also one thing we will do is there's been some criticism leveled at this movie, and I think a lot of the criticism that's been leveled at it is extremely reductionist. And uh, I found some people's thoughts on it that I think articulate the issues and. Yeah. Uh, some arguments about them quite well. So we can approach that later. Um, I was surprised as well to find out that Charles Manson's literally in this movie for like 15 seconds. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I kind of thought he'd be in a lot more. I kind of liked the idea... There was an interview that I watched with Tarantino where he was talking about how he liked the idea that you'd be able to see what life was like on Spawn Ranch... Um, when Charlie wasn't there, and you just better see what daily life was like on a normal. What people did while yeah, just on a around. normal day, like he mm. says, they weren't normally allowed to watch TV because Charlie didn't like it, and so like he, right. he liked the idea that when Charlie wasn't there, he would set them like watching TV in the big house and like. Um, yeah, so they're sort of disobeying Charles Manson. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's um, funny. Uh, I was just really surprised that I liked the movie a lot more than I thought I would. Mm. Um, well. It no. grows on you. Uh, yeah, you yeah, I suppose what I mean, it's grown on me. Because when I, when I left the cinema, I felt a bit cold on it. But it's grown yeah. on me the more I've thought about it, and the more I've sort of let it sort of sit with me a bit. Um, have you got a favorite scene from the film or a favorite sequence? Good question. I mean, like, so we're into, well into spoiler territory. Yeah. It's a, it's a cheap answer, but I liked the, the fight scene. It's yeah, not my favorite. Yeah. It's not my favorite. But I, I do feel like it still is the main, like a linchpin of the film, I suppose. Not in that the film requires it. Uh, it sort of does. Because it's all the payoff, but it's very brief. Um, I, I thought it was almost... I, th- I thought the fact that the rest of the film was so mature and then that car- that fight scene was so cartoony and so over-the-top and kind of ridiculous, I kind of broke me out of it a bit. I really enjoyed it, but, like, literally the woman going, like, ah, Ludicrous. running around was so stupid. It was stupid. Yeah. That like I, I didn't it sort of broke me out of it a bit and so I thought that the film was fun but I think within the con- I thought that fight scene was fun but I think within the context of the rest of the film mm. it was kind of like black and white. I I personally yeah I, you know I liked I mean. that for a few reasons, um, not because I actually particularly liked the way that the violence was depicted on screen, um, because like yeah it was over the top and unnecessary and beyond yeah. a certain point I didn't really like enjoy it for the sake of it. Yeah. Um, because I'm not a fucking sicko. I read some concerning things from like uh, American audiences or American reviewers that went and they were like, the audience enjoyed the violence more than they should have, which is creepy because I feel like there was a lot of silence in our audience while that was happening. And Australian audiences are quite like weird, apparently. Compared, well, <laughs> maybe American audiences are weird, but Australian audiences tend to be really quiet. 
um, even if they're enjoying a film, like mm. loving it a lot, that they're very quiet and it's hard to judge. Whereas American audiences will be like uproarious and clapping. It's a pretty stereotypical dynamic, but go figure. Yeah. But apparently, like, yeah, when the big ex- explosive fight scene happens at the end, like when these women are getting like belted in the face with cans or burnt alive. Like, audience members were cheering and whooping. And oh, it was like, gosh, we were brutal. mortified, man. It was, like, awful. It was like, oh, you know? Yeah. Not in a good way. Like, fucking hell, that person is tortured. Yeah. Awful also, shit. Like, they're murderers and they're terrible people. Right. Like, I feel like it served a bunch of different purposes because when you think about it, like, I feel like that was Tarantino's way of having a bit of, like, brutal revenge on the people that... Committed so. those awful crimes. It's, it's kind of the same thing as what he did with Inglorious Bastards, with like burning the Nazis alive. Right, but then at the same time, what he's using are the horrifically violent techniques that those murderers would have used, right? And so it's meant so. it's meant to be horrific in the same way, and it's sort of going, well, yeah, you you're enjoying this because it's like your little like opportunity to have a revenge fantasy, right? But what you're actually doing in order to what you're doing is engaging in that revenge fantasy, yeah. Using the same like levels of violence. I mean, like, yeah, they the the in real life the murderers like um, cut people open and and like smeared blood on the walls. Yeah, they didn't have a flamethrower, right? They didn't like yeah. burn someone to death, right? So it, he he even says in in a cinematic way, like, you if you're enjoying this, you need to ask why. And I don't think he's doing that. In it's a way, that, like... He's, he's, he's had all that cartoony ultra-violence in all his other films as well. I yeah, think. but I think people need... I, I think it's a really important question. It's not He's not the first person to ask it, but, like, why do we enjoy watching that? Like, why is that something that we go to the movies for? Tarantino's, like, violent payoff has always been a part of his films. But I think it's a good thing to ask, like, what's enjoyable about that? Do we enjoy seeing these people tortured? Like, in Reservoir yeah. Dogs, where that guy gets his ear cut off, like... That's sickening, but would the film be better without it? Like, no, it's an integral part of the film, but you see it. It's awful in, in gruesome detail, and you see it happening. So why do we enjoy watching that? I don't have, a, like, a really good answer to that question. <laughs> but Brilliant. Well, no, I, only because I think it's a really complicated psychological question of, like, it's yeah, it's it's allowing you to live in a world that's with, which lets you see shit, but safely where you don't have to suffer the consequences of what's being done. But the question with this movie is, like, which side do you find yourself on? Do you find yourself enjoying it because you're watching it happen to those people or do you find yeah. yourself enjoying it because it's revenge or do you find yourself enjoying it because of the sheer actual violence of it? You yeah. know? Um, and different people will probably have different answers to that to that question. But he's taking the opportunity, I think, to to both like have his moment of revenge and say, like, fuck you for what you people did because this was this was something that was brewing under the surface, but you were the ones that did it really. You yeah. were the ones that crystallized it into an action, and you deserve to be to have a horrible stuff done to you for that because that's what you ended up doing. But the horrible stuff that I feel like I want to do to you is sort of similar to what you did, right? It's just in retaliation rather than not in retaliation. Yeah, so I, I suppose. So. I think that was interesting, but I I I don't know. The rest of the the rest of the film sort of feels like a continuous soup. Um, my favorite scene that it's hard to pick one out of. My yeah, favorite scene, if you want, if you want a reminder, was the the Brad Pitt scene where he gets back to his trailer caravan by the drive-in theater and feeds his dog. I thought that was <laughs> really cool. The dog food like slipping out of the can, yeah. pulling out of the bowl. Uh, I thought that was like the perfect Tarantino um, combination of like comic and mundane and 
like a really interesting, beautiful little window into this dude's life where he sort of just like gets back home to his little trailer and doesn't give a fuck and just like chills out and he's talking to his dog and watching TV and mm. he's got his dog all trained up and that. I thought that was really great. I really like my one another favorite scene of mine was there's, there's a whole so a lot of this film is told in vignettes where you've got like different flash scenes to past films and TV shows that Rick Dalton's been in. Yeah, like um, actually properly filmed stuff. Yeah, so like the Tarantino fake filmed like little three minute segments from like 15 different movies. Um, Including like deep cutting DiCaprio into like The, the Great, Great Escape. Escape and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> really exactly. funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then there's a whole like half an hour long scene where, uh, not a scene, like a half an hour long sequence with DiCaprio on set um, filming a guest spot on some TV show like are we filming like a western I think this is what I was about to say yeah. um, I think it's I think it's an actual real life show that was a real show back in the day called Lancer um, and he's playing like the baddie or whatever and there's a scene where he sort of fucks up his lines on set and then he gets back into his trailer and has like an emotional breakdown and he's yelling and screaming at himself because the night before when he was learning his lines he like got really drunk Um and just the breakdown and like self-hatred that DiCaprio exhibits in that one scene where he says like, you're a fucking, talking to himself like, you're a fucking moron. Why'd you have to have eight drinks last night? You embarrassed yourself in front of all these people. Mm. You're not a real fucking actor. You're a joke. And like beating himself up is so good. And, and it's he's like beating himself up because he actually gives a shit, but he doesn't have like the personal fortitude to overpower his own like, like habits and yeah, yeah exactly I thought it was so good and I, f- I feel like it's the sort of emotion that everyone can identify with to some degree um, oh yeah like mo- moments where like you do shit despite your own best interest and you're like what the fuck am I doing yeah what the fuck am I doing yeah while you're doing it yeah, yeah. Um, like even just on like a mundane level like uh, procrastinating when you could be studying yeah when you actually care about whatever work yeah supposed to be I doing. stay up too late way yeah. too often yeah and it'll get to like midnight and I'll just fuck. be like what the fuck again yeah. fuck yeah uh, and exactly like, like what would it take for me not to fucking do this and DiCaprio does that perfect like yelling at himself yeah and like it kind of reminds me of his performance in Wolf of Wall Street a bit as well um, and his performance is Calvin Candy in Inglorious Bastards where he does that perfect amount of like rage that's almost comical in a way but then really tragic that I, I really really enjoyed do you um, mean in uh Django Unchained. That's what I meant, sorry. Yeah, I, yeah. I said in I meant Django yeah. Unchained, yeah. Um, no, I, I, that was my favourite scene in the whole film. Yeah, I think that was probably mine too. I also really liked, there's a moment that precedes that where he's filming on set and he has to, he's really nailing this performance and then yeah. he falters and has to ask for a line and so he ends up like, it's sort of a, I think it's a continuous cut. Oh, it's cool. The shot is like as if you were watching a TV show shot. Yeah, and it'll have like a pan around, like the the, the camera. It's shot doing like a three sixty around the conversation. Yeah, we're, we're basically watching the episode of the TV show that's finished, yeah. and then it'll cut, and it'll break the fourth wall as ter- as Dick Afria then asks for his line. I don't it. know if it even cuts. I, I, uh, feel I suppose like I don't mean cut. I mean like it stops. Like it, it cuts. Yeah, the, he the, stops. The magic of the shot. Yeah, it's like the but whole TV show pauses. It's while all done through like his performance, where yeah. he's just like he'll be delivering this line and he'll sort of pause, and you'll think it's part of the performance, but then he'll look up and be like, "What was the line again?" Like, yeah. he'll fuck it up, and so he'll that 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 happens a few times. Hopefully, you've seen it if you're listening by now. But like, yeah. it happens a few times, and he starts to in one basically one take starts to become 
less confident and more flustered as he realizes yeah. he's getting worse and embarrassing himself more and ends up getting really upset and completely breaking down in character with people off camera encouraging him and egging him on and saying like, no, just fucking keep going say the line. Like we almost have it. Just keep, yeah. just, you're fine. Just do it. And he's like, get his anxiety like really gets to him. And then he kind of like wrestles it back under control for a moment. He manages to like finish the scene, goes back to his trailer. And that's when he has that massive breakdown, which yeah. we've, we don't just get the breakdown. We've seen like the moments that led up to him yeah. being like, what the fuck is wrong with and me? And just the acting from DiCaprio to be able to see, like instantly snap from one character to another and then gradually break the character down over oh. the course of the next three minutes. He's it can't so good be understated movie. like how much his performance makes this film. It's ridiculous. Because he has to play often like two levels of character yeah. because he's acting as an actor. Um, and that sounds very like cheap and like, oh, he's acting as an actor. But the way that he does that is really incredible because he, he's acting as a very troubled person mm. who's then acting yeah, with all of those burdens under the surface. And it's very good. It's so good. I, I think I sort of mentioned it earlier, but you were kind of reminding me of some stuff we were talking about off air where I, um, Rick Dalton's journey in sort of having to come to terms with the fact that his career is kind of dying is kind of happening on par and as a me- is almost a metaphor for the way in which Hollywood is fundamentally changing at the end of the 60s. Um, I listened to that uh, Charles Manson, you, you know, I did mention this already, yeah, yeah. The, the, you must remember this podcast that was talking about the history of the Charles Manson murders um, and just the idea that it almost represents like a death of innocence of Hollywood mm. itself um, because this brutal, like Margot Robbie, of course, in this film plays Sharon Tate, who is this beautiful, considered to be like the most beautiful woman in the world, I think on par with like Marilyn Monroe kind of levels of iconic stardom, at least in retrospect. Um, and she's, of course, married to Roman Polanski, who at the time was considered to be one of the, he says in this film, like the hottest, one of the hottest directors around. Mm. Uh, and so just the idea that, like, you know, this level of, like, Hollywood royalty can be, like, brutally murdered in her, in her own home. She's pregnant and all her friends and her are stabbed to death repeatedly and, like, their blood is painted on the walls of their Hollywood mansion. Just the idea that, like, no one is safe and these Hollywood elites have been, like, torn down. Um kind of was seen as a mi- as like a milestone and a turning off point from which like the gritty Hollywood and the gritty movies of the 70s started to appear. That's when you start to go like, I think The Shining is a 70s movie and like Apocalypse Now and all these crazy dark movies that are a lot more violent, like Scarface type shit that you would never have gotten in the 60s and you would have never have gotten in the 50s when it was still this sort of glitz glitz and glam polished up to a high sheen yeah golden age of hollywood type shit um and so at the same time the sort of huge turning point that you see for hollywood in history after the manson murders happen and they're kind of a backdrop for this film you see that exact same thing happening with rick dalton as he's going through all this self-doubt and he's tearing himself down it's like oh you're a joke and like you're a fucking alcoholic no one respects you no one respects you anymore um and he's having to sort of reinvent himself and sort of have a new career and sort of yeah, I don't know. I really enjoyed it. I, I really I really loved thinking about all the different parallels and all the parallels between the, the history of Hollywood and the ways in which that ties in with uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt characters that are these like sort of rep- these relics of Hollywood and then the way in which that also ties in with Quentin Tarantino's memory of his childhood and all this uh, uh, great old movie. 
Yeah, and I think one of the so like the bottom I guess the bottom line of this film, which ties back nicely to the title, is that what he's actually doing here is that he's allowing himself the fantasy of what 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 might have happened if things were a little bit different right. on, on that night. And as like a fairy tale yeah. type thing. And so of course in the end of the film, um, instead of the Sharon Tate being murdered, the hippies get distracted by like Leonardo DiCaprio drunkenly yelling at them with his margarita mix and <laughs> shit. <laughs> Which is like like so fucking a funny. real iconic look. He's yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's I feel like like, like Leonardo DiCaprio in a bathrobe holding a jug full of frozen margarita mix <laughs> might just be my favourite like, yeah. <laughs> just being unreasonably angry at people. Yeah. <laughs> Find myself being like Yeah. Yeah. So they I get it. <laughs> so the hippies decide decide to try and kill Leo and his friends instead. Because they're next door neighbors to Sharon Tate. It's one of my favorite things when a character is just like <laughs> you're like yelling at someone relentlessly <laughs> and the character who's like being yelled at just kind of like sits there in silence mm. and then the character who's yelling at them like keeps going because they're frustrated that they're not <laughs> reacting fast enough. It's just like, come on, what the fuck are you doing? Go, Still sitting go, there. Yeah. Get yeah. the fuck out of here. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Love that shit. Yeah. And, and, and so Sharon Tate doesn't die at the end of the film. No. And, and just the idea that like, what would have happened to the Hollywood industry? What would have happened right. to the world if, you know, um, the Hollywood darling hadn't been hadn't been like gunned down in her prime. Yeah, and of course, uh, again, like what that would have meant, it, and it's quite nuanced when you when you look at it. Is what that would have meant is well, instead, people from Hollywood would have done those violent things in self-defense, right? And so, like, you wouldn't have had this death of the icon, and the narrative would be quite different. But the violence. Yeah. Still happened. It just happened in a different way, which is really interesting. Yeah, Rick Dalton goes on to have dr- have a drink with Sharon Tate that night, and they might become friends. It's he implied. Might become huge. Yeah. 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 Uh, oh man. Yeah. Really, really interesting. Um. So I guess talking about uh, th- there have been th- th- it, l- it lends itself kind of well. There have been two, um, I guess main controversies around this film, which I think aren't interesting to discuss as gossip so much as they're interesting to look at different elements of the film through and and sort of ask why people have a problem with this sort of stuff. Um, One is depiction, and I guess this is sort of the less uh, pervasive one, is the depiction of Bruce Lee in this movie, someone that I feel like Tarantino has had a, a pretty significant influence Someone who's had a pretty significant influence on Tarantino's work. Yeah, I mean, if you look at Kill Bill, like yeah, that's a huge obviously huge. And yeah, yeah. Um, and the other one is just the treatment of Sharon Tate, but women in general, uh, both in this film and and through his entire filmography, I suppose more more so recently. Yeah. Um. So there were a, there was one article on Vox that I guess I'll link, which like kind of looked at a bunch of the different controversies that have been. I hate that fucking word. <laughs> a bunch of the issues that people have taken with these things and then sort of condensed people's responses who are much more qualified than I am to to talk about these sorts of things. Give us the crib notes, boy. But I guess, yeah, with this Bruce Lee one, and I feel like it's just important to talk about this because sometimes these issues, like this was an issue with Blade Runner 2049 where I know a lot of people, um, a few women that I talked to didn't go to see that movie because they heard some, like, critique of the film and its treatment of women. Um which was a different perspective to what I had. I don't want to say it wasn't valid, but I felt like it was a very reductionist criticism of the film. Yeah. And um, they didn't go see it because of that. And I sort of thought, well, that's really frustrating because I feel like 
You might you might have liked it. It's a shame you didn't get a chance to form right. your own opinion. And I also on just it. don't think that person was correct. Yeah. But you've listened to them, and it's affected your perspective of the film well, before you go o- in. It's often a lot more. It's a lot easier to give like publicity to those big controversial opinions. Right. Than to be like, actually, here's a breakdown of why that might not. And to just take away like a one sentence headline of like this new movie is trash because it treats women like trash. This movie suffers very much from the same thing yeah. where these headlines will very quickly um, criticize it in a, in a very specific way with a lot of buzzwords and it's easy to take a heuristic kind of perspective of that. But I think that it's, yeah. it's important to just delve down a little more. So w- regarding uh, the treatment of Bruce Lee, um, there was an interview with his daughter, uh, Shannon Lee, um, where she was quite critical of his portrayal in the film. Essentially, there's a scene where Brad Pitt either has a dream speculative kind of thing or it's like a memory. I think it definitely is like a, yeah. I think it's a memory of Brad Pitt being on on set for what is maybe the Bruce Lee film, uh, The Hornet, where backstage while they're waiting for the next scene, Bruce Lee arrogantly like challenges Brad Pitt to a fight. And mm. Brad Pitt makes a fool of him in the film by uh, like beating the crap out of Bruce Lee and like showing that he's like an arrogant show off. Yeah, it was sort of like it's Bruce Lee being like a total douche and being like, "My arms are lethal weapons, man." When you break it down to the specifics, yeah, I guess the the point is that like Bruce Lee's being really arrogant and um, Brad Pitt is really Booth, cool like knocks collect- him down yeah. a peg. But neither of them they have a best of three fight and you don't get to see the third round. So like. Really, who knows? And it is revealed that, yeah, this was sort of a, a, a fantasy slash embellished memory yeah. for Brad Pitt's character. So it's not exactly a... Tarantino's not trying to say this was an objective portrayal of his character anyway. But but also, like I feel like it, you can't really trust both sides because obviously, like on the one hand, Tarantino didn't know Bruce Lee as well as his daughter did. But on the other hand, like it must have sucked for his daughter to watch her dad be portrayed as this, like, arrogant douche on screen. And so, like, even if Bruce Lee was, to some degree, arrogant or was a bit full of himself, it must be hard for Sharon Lee to watch that. So I think on both Mm. counts, I don't know. Yeah, well, it's not one thing or the other, right? Yeah. So this person, Walter Chaw, wrote in Vulture, and he wrote an article entitled Why Are You Laughing at Bruce Lee? It was about this movie. And he said that when he watched the film, he actually started crying... Uh, out of respect and sentimentality when Bruce Lee was on the screen because immediately what he saw as a, a, a Chinese-American who was watching Bruce Lee was that he, all of a sudden, all of that childhood fondness that he had for that character came welling back up in him and he remembered watching him on screen and feeling that pride of seeing Chinese-American representation on sure. screen at the time, right? And... What he said about it was that he felt like that was one of the most honest if not accurate, (laughs) portrayals of Bruce Lee. Um, Because a lot of the more, like, quote, respectful, end quote, portrayals, and I'm paraphrasing, so sorry if I kind of get this a bit wrong, but my understanding was a lot of the more respectful portrayals kind of whitewash all of the racism that he experienced and just hold him up as, like, this icon. And it's like, no, he was constantly battling against this tide of racism. like, wise kung fu guru Right, and not just that, but, like, people people respecting him for, like, yeah, that that sort of, like, mystic bullshit, but also, like, just being racist towards Chinese people, which he constantly had to battle against and being, like, caricatured and whatever. So he did kind of put up this veneer of arrogance and pride in order to combat that because he said, like, you know, he, he was 
he was one of the best, but he had to be one of the best and he had to be confident in himself about being one of the best, which was yeah. where that arrogance kind of came from sometimes. Yeah. And so he said like, well, there was nothing really, this portrayal, again, it was in a f- sort of character's fantasy, so it wasn't meant to be this objective portrayal, but also it was it was in its own way very fond and respectful and acknowledging of the trial that Bruce Lee had to go through in order to become the icon that he was and what he actually had to experience in his career rather than just saying like, no, he was the best and no one ever questioned him and no one, you know, like everyone just loved him at the time because that wasn't true. And it's almost more disrespectful to ignore all of the context around yeah, that, exactly. which I, I really agree with. Um, and I think it's nice to have the perspective of someone that feels really strongly about that. Yeah. Uh, and I think like also within context, the, the, the comic nature of the scene is like, shut up, man, you can't beat up Bruce Lee. Like it even like, yeah, that's why he it's comes so, back to yeah. his own mind, and it was just his fantasy that he was having. Well, I, I, yeah. I thought it was a dream, but people I've heard online thought it was like him remembering last time he was on set. But I thought it was a lot funnier to have him think about like it was a daydream. I thought it was a daydream. Yeah, yeah of him thinking like thirty steps ahead of being like, well, if this happens, then that'll happen, and then this happens, and then that's that'll how happen. I read it as and well. And then I'm gonna beat up Bruce Lee that's and be what, yeah. kicked off set because at so the I end he goes like, huh, fair enough, and you yeah. wouldn't say that unless a character. Unless you yeah, were right. kind of thinking through that character's thoughts, right? If anything, if you, if you analyze why it's funny, it's making fun of Cliff Booth. I think so. For that was thinking so it. much of himself that he thinks like, oh, if I get on set, I'm just going to beat up Bruce Lee and then... Yeah, 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 yeah. But then also kind of being aware of the fact that maybe that's not the way that it would have gone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I, don't, I, I, th- I think I agree. It's very reductionist to then be like, all that scene means is that Quentin Tarantino thinks that Bruce Lee is a bit arrogant and not very good at fighting. Yeah. Like, well, that's not, that's not really what he's saying. Yeah. It's and then he needed to be knocked down a bit. Like, no, he, he, he knows yeah. what Bruce Lee means. So, so, and yeah, yeah, I think he just was trying to be honest. Yeah. Uh, similarly, not to, um, I don't know, drag on to all those controversy. I think the next story you were going to go off was based on the uh, press conference at Cannes where Quentin Tarantino was asked about the about why Margot, Margot Robbie's, Robbie's character doesn't really have very much to say in the film. Um, and Quentin Tarantino pretty much shut the question down and didn't answer it. And he said, I disagree with the hypothesis. I disagree with your hypothesis or something. Uh, but Margot Robbie, the, the greater context of that quote, I think, uh, was that I, I watched that whole half an hour press conference and Margot Robbie had an- talked about twice already and then said again um, that uh, Quentin Tarantino described Sharon Tate's role in the film as being the heartbeat of the film and my interpretation of that isn't necessarily that she's a main character. I think she gets top billing because she's Margot Robbie yeah. and she's you know uh, a great actress. Extremely good actor. And she's uh, a beautiful woman playing a beautiful woman very well and so it's a very notable performance but I think that within the context of the film she's like a supporting, supporting character yep. that like is the timeline by which the fictional events are sort of tacked to. Yep, she comes in for important beats, and that's... Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. like, I, the, the, the fact that she doesn't Also, have she looks a shitload like Sharon Tate. Like, yeah, it's exactly. just a fit for the role, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. The, the fact that she doesn't have very many lines in the film is just because she doesn't need to to be able to effectively portray the character and to effectively fulfill the function of the role that she's supposed to be playing in the film. Yeah. Um, 
So, of course, in this and press she conference... Had, and she has a brilliant scene where she's in the cinema. Yeah, I really this. liked that. That was one other one of my favourites. It's Margot Robbie as Sharon, Sharon Tate goes and buys a ticket to see... Uh, gets in for free to see uh, one of her own films. Mm. And Sharon Tate at the time isn't hugely famous. I think she's more famous for being... Uh, up-and-coming Hollywood starlet that's the wife of Roman Polanski, Polanski yeah. rather than she is a huge talent in her own Hollywood right. star. I think she was trying to sort of make it big yep. at the time. Um, so she plays this she role like where she's famous like, for being famous. I yeah, think. she's in this scene as a hotel uh, clerk concierge or, or clerk or whatever, yeah. and she's kind of like funny, but also like uh, a little clever upstart yeah and it's a Sharon Tate goes in and watches herself in the, she goes sneaks in right as the lights go down and watches the movie and is just enjoying and basking in the joy of the whole audience laughing with her jokes on screen and she's the joy is that she's not expecting it and, and she's really proud of seeing herself her reaction is was really beautiful I thought it was yeah. such a such an excellent moment on screen and, yeah. bolstered by again a really strong performance from her and I think it's a really nice sort of nod to the legacy of Sharon Tate who I think is often remembered for being the woman who was killed by Charles Manson right. rather than yeah it's a good point for a woman who is an actor, an a- yeah, an actor in her own right, and had an up and coming career, had a career right. that she was really proud of, and a career that people enjoyed perhaps at the time. Mm. And, and so to watch d- depicting so- that yeah. through a private moment, I think is a really clever way to do it because yeah. we couldn't really have known that unless she told someone about it, which I'm not aware of. So yeah, exactly. I think it was a very clever way to do it. Sorry, and, but also the Sharon Tate has no. Aside from the very end, she has no interaction with the main characters of the film. Right, of she lives which next the door. Whole yeah, of which the whole film is. It's more like a, <laughs> it's more like a joke of circumstance that Rick Dalton lives next door to the Polanski residence. Yeah. Um, that is like, I don't know. It, it is. I think it's played for laughs in the film, and it pulls yeah, up, yeah. and you realize that she lives right next door to the house yeah. where you know shit's gonna go down. Um, and so I just, I just disagree with. The, I think the implied accusation that Quentin Tarantino is somehow being sexist by not giving. Sharon Tate lines or is somehow overlooking her character. Right. I think that you could say there aren't many female roles in the film and that's that's a valid complaint. And the ones that are, which is another thing that comes up, the ones that are, are basically the women that get the fuck beaten out of them at the yeah. end of the movie. I think, I think that would be a, I, I think there are a lot more intelligent ways to phrase that question that yeah. might have been better received at the Khan press oh, conference. Yeah, and that's the thing like, about that conference clip is it was a bullshit gotcha question that he was just exactly. clearly frustrated about. Yeah. Probably having to answer for the billionth time. Yeah. Well, and I think I think that was, might have been the premiere so like, I don't know. But like, well, I, I yeah. can definitely feel like he might have been like worried about it or yeah, maybe you're Right, he's, he's talked about it a lot, but it's all this gotcha questions and bull, gotcha journalism bullshit that you can tell he just had to shut down immediately. And I think that Margot Robbie did a good, good, good job of handling the question of being like, yep. "Well, actually, I fucking addressed this. Uh, you but don't need yeah. lines to do a good performance." And the nuance takes more than like two minutes of video on Twitter to show. So of course, it's never getting through the. Yeah, exactly. The the, the meat grinder. Yeah, of I I watched the half an hour video for you listeners. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, um, um, and and good on you for yeah. it. So I don't know. I, I think there are definitely valid complaints about there being not enough female representation in film, and the idea that there aren't female characters in a film, I think, is something that has credence and is a valid valid criticism. But there are better ways to make that argument than to just pick a character, pick Margot Robbie's character, be like, why didn't she have lines? It's like, well. Have you watched the movie? Have you thought about the movie? There's a good reason why that specific character doesn't have lines. Shut up. Yeah. So the this article, which is the 
kind of compilation was written by Emily Todd Vanderveff uh, in Vox, and I think she does a really good job of um, pulling together some of the threads of this issue. Uh, so she says, like, one of the weirdest pieces of criticism was a piece in Time magazine that combs <laughs> through Tarantino's entire filmography and counts the number of lines that women... Uh, counts the number of dialogue lines that women have versus that men have. It yeah. also omits uh, Death Proof, whose ma- cast members are mostly women. Um, but... Uh, has Kill Bill 1 and updated. 2. Yeah, I- exactly. So, and, and she says it's a bad piece of criticism because it confuses raw data with context. Um, uh, for instance, like Jackie Brown uh, features fewer than half its lines spoken by women, but the film's protagonist is like vital and uh, such so energetic and wonderful as a character that it's very reductionist to say that that film is not about that character or, or that she doesn't kind of feature yeah. in an important manner. It reminds me of an interview I watched with Samuel L. Jackson when people were asking him when Inglorious Bastards came out and just in general about the, the common accusation that happens about Quentin Tarantino, which is that he's racist because he uses the N-word a lot in his movies. And Samuel L. Jackson said that his opinion was, he's like, look, man, every single movie that he writes a character for me in, my character is the most intelligent, most savvy, most switched on character in the movie that has, that knows what's going on all the time. He says like, if Quentin Tarantino was a racist, he wouldn't be able to write an intelligent, switched on, savvy, well put together character for a black guy. I have no problem with the fact that Tarantino wants to use the N-word. In his scripts, yeah, he didn't. He didn't say that explicitly. His sorry. main argument is that he's writing a racist character. He's yeah. not himself. Yeah, he's, but I guess he said like, like Tarantino is not a racist because he can write. He can write these intelligent characters for me. Mm. And that like Spike Lee, who's a director, uh, who made sorry to bother you, um, has been no, he didn't. Sorry, this is Boots Riley. Um, he made uh, Black Klansman. Black Klansman. Thank you. Um, he ha- has leveled criticism regularly at Tarantino for this type of shit. Um, and for all of the reasons that you would think where he just sort of says, I think he, he gets like too much enjoyment out of it, basically. Um, I definitely see that. I, yeah. I, yeah, I understand both sides. Uh, and I'm not really sure that there's a, a right answer. I'm also white. Yeah, exactly. I suppose my point with that was the idea that I can see where you can very easily get trapped in like a reductionist argument mm. where it's like, oh, he uses the N-word because he's the therefore racist. And it's like, well, no, there's an argument and there's a perspective from one of the actors in the film that says, well, no, you've got to look at the context. Yeah. You've got to look at the ca- the role, the function of the characters in the film and that kind of thing. Right. And about how if you look at it that way, that char- this actor thinks it's less problematic. Yeah. So Emily in Vox sort of says um, it's... there's just this overarching question that's this kind of like floating above his entire career which is like does this guy hate women or what um and she sort of summarizes the answer to the question as it's like it's kind of both question mark like yes he does and no he doesn't in a way um because like his films are and it's very similar to the uh, the kind of situation that you just put forward where his films are full of these really really deep fascinating uh complex characters like jackie brown or the bride from kill bill um uh, but at the same time, um, the way that those characters are treated is sometimes like subject to some of the worst violence in the series. And yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, he uses violence and like revels in violence a lot um, f- for people of uh, basically any sex or race. Um, so yeah, I'm not too sure that there's... I, I think that's similar, similarly 
conflating data. It's like it happens a lot, but it happens a lot to to everyone. Yeah, I so, suppose so I suppose you can pick and choose stuff. Like you can say, like in the Hateful Eight, for example, the um, Donahue woman who plays the guitar. Yep. Daisy Donahue, whatever her name is. Um, she gets beaten as like a slapstick punchline like ten times in that film, and that sort of slapstick violence doesn't happen to anyone else in that film, really. Yeah. Um, so I can definitely see what they're talking about. And uh, I mean, yeah. So the, you know, his his films have uh, a lot a lot of this type of violence. It's it's often played for laughs, like in Hateful Eight. Um, and Hateful Eight is the film that um, she was that that Emily is describing, where she talks about the the man next to her. That's like when this the the character in Hateful Eight gets like belted across the face repeatedly and had the shit beaten out of her. This guy was like cheering, and she was yeah, like, fuck. "What the fuck is wrong with you?" I agree with her. That's yeah. psychopathic. So she pulls an uh, an article from another quote, which I I think I'll I'll read and then leave it on because yeah. I I think this was written by Alison Wilmore in BuzzFeed News, and I think she summarizes it better than I've seen anyone else do. Oh and God! Not just for the issue of his depiction of women, but I think this is applicable in general. Um, so Alison Wilmore says, I don't think Tarantino hates women. I think he's sincerely invested in and likes writing women characters and gives more thought to their interiority than some other lauded filmmakers have. But I also think when it suits him to not think about these things, he doesn't. That he's perfectly comfortable rejecting even the possibility that he's made missteps because he's so sure of his own authorship and his right to be king of his own cinematic worlds. His love of movies and his faith that their transportive pleasures justify themselves have always set his work apart, but those beliefs are also a convenient way of dodging the fact that these movies then play in a real world where you might find yourself sitting in a theatre full of people guffawing in delight at the sight of Jennifer Jason Leigh getting belted in the face. Which I think is a really good way to put it, that he does become this sort of what auteur of his own cinematic world and he wants the right to be able to forget about those issues when he feels like that art is going to be better for it. Almost like he's and not checking himself. Like he wants a female character yeah. there and then he also wants to be able to beat the crap out of her for laughs. And, like, and his argument is that if you take that context out of the real world, that doesn't matter. And he, he's right, yeah. but it's not out of the real world. I it's it's so. in the real world. And he's, his argument is that he shouldn't need to consider like, nah, look that. At e- look at each film in isolation and look at the character in isolation right. and like, don't look at the fact that... Which I think yeah. is a really... I, I think uh, r- massive credit to Alison Wilmot because I think she's articulated that in a really clever way. Um, and it feels... That's one of the few explanations that I've read that feels right to me about the way that Tarantino writes on screen. Because yeah. he does write these complex characters. He does clearly give a shit. He really cares about the interiority of these characters. But he also wants to be able to do whatever the fuck he wants to people. Yeah. And sometimes that does feel exploitative or... Um, you think that maybe in those cases he's just not thinking about it. He's just like, oh, wouldn't it be cool? In some cases he really is thinking about it, and then in some cases he's like, wouldn't it be cool if I did this? Let's do it. Exactly. And then yeah. the implication of that is like, well, you're you're humorously abusing, physically abusing a woman, and it's like, well, yes, but he does that to men as well. But there isn't the gender imbalance in the real world. He's arguing that that gender imbalance isn't present in his film, and therefore doesn't matter. You know yeah. what I mean? So it's kind of yeah, like yeah. like I said, I I think. He wants the right to be able to ignore those issues for the sake of his art. And I think that the problem is that you don't get the right to ignore those issues and then be void of criticism from them. It's that they come with their own criticism that's equally valid as 
the art is to stand in its own right. So I I think it's a really complex issue, but the bottom line of it and the reason why I chose to focus on that so much was because I think don't let that stop you. And if you'll, I I think none of that is... (laughs) He's made it this far. (laughs) None of that's a spoiler because I think it should help some people make the decision whether or not they want to go and see the film. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's worth you making up your own mind about whether or not you enjoy and agree with the way that he's depicting it. But them, so. in this film specifically, though... Um, I mean, I don't think the criticism is really valid for this film because I no. do feel like... I feel like Margot Robbie's representative of the way that Sharon Tate was used in the era and, if anything, grants her a lot more insight than the era yeah, did. I agree. So I think it's one of the more... I think he's actually made a character a little more complex. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, yeah, he still cast a female character that didn't really get many lines and was just used as a bit of an icon. Um, but that feels reductionist to me because it feels like that's discounting the, the work like, that yeah, he did in do in the film. In specific context, that's exactly the whole point of right. the character. He's actually using it as commentary. He's not just doing it and falling into the habits of old yeah, um, and, and sort of ignoring that type of stuff. In this particular context, I think in some of his other films, like Hateful Eight is a lot more easy to to look at and criticise because, yeah, that character is, yeah. is, is treated that way for um, laughs and the payoff of the film is like, yeah, kind of, that that violence against her, so yeah. yeah, it's different. Rounding up a bit, I thought that the film had a brilliant soundtrack. Again, he's done a very good job. I interestingly, I, I tried to listen to the soundtrack this week, and I didn't actually enjoy listening to the songs in isolation. Just the as soundtrack. Much. Mm. It's a lot of sixties pop and doo wop kind of stuff. Yeah, maybe doo wop's the wrong way, but it's like a lot of sixties pop and rock kind of things. It's the Kinks, but not the Kinks kind of. <laughs> yeah, um, off-brand Kinks. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of shit you've never heard, and I think it's a, it's a perfect exemplification of how Tarantino really brilliantly meshes the film and the music together when you're watching it on screen. Like Just creates this universe. He'll pick the, what's tonally perfect for the scene he's doing. Yeah. To the point where I think that it's greater than the sum of its parts. Where like I, I was listening to the soundtrack at work, being like, oh, this song wasn't really as good as it was when it was on screen. <laughs> yeah. But the songs when they're on screen are so good and there's lots of really great 60s pop and rock stuff yep. that I'd never heard that I really enjoyed um, that are great little gems. Um, I thought it was really well shot as it's well. It's beautifully shot. I was just about to say, all of the, the like the colorizing and the, and the um, I mean, it, he's, his Tarantino, it's always been a strength of his, the, the way that he builds shots and, and yeah. creates environments. And yeah, and there he uses heaps of extended cuts, like long, um, drawn long, out scenes, even, even, long takes. Even if it's not a cut, like the, the whole scene drawn out where um, Brad Pitt's character Cliff Booth gets to Spawn Ranch and is looking for his old friend, yeah. the way that scene just goes on and on and on is really great in a very Tarantino y kind of way. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the. This, like the cinematography is just fantastic. It doesn't lose out on the quality of like any of his other films. You know, they're all he he's if anything just going from strength to strength in terms of his like yeah. cinematic techniques. The performance is fucking incredible from every single they're person brilliant. in this movie. Just infallible. The final act, I think, for out of spoilers, that the final act uh, was a ton of fun as well. <laughs> yeah. um, he just g- does a few things that separate it out. Like the LSD <laughs> makes it fucking funny oh so good so funny yeah, uh, and it's not just the violence that's funny it's Bra- so fucking funny man and Brad Pitt is so funny <laughs> yeah he, he really so does funny. have this quality to him he just steals the show whenever yeah. he's on screen he just it's just him and DiCaprio like such yeah, a great combo a brilliant combo yeah. uh, he was talking uh, Tarantino was talking about the fact that if he couldn't if he couldn't have gotten one of those he would have had to recast up both the whole duo 
Like you said, yeah, like, that's a great point. Even just the fact that uh, Brad Pitt is supposed to be Leonardo DiCaprio's stunt double in the film, so he had to pick two actors that kind of look similar, <laughs> that's so that kind of have a similar build. Yeah. Well, he said like he couldn't have cast one of them as Vin Diesel, for example. Right. Like right, if right, it was Vin right. Diesel, the other one would have had to have been The Rock. Yeah, kind yeah, of shit. yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. But they do have this. I, I don't know what it is. I think it maybe well, it's sort the of fact do, that they're sort of old guard of cinema. Yeah. Now they're getting to that stage. They're sort of yeah. in there. Oh fuck! Brad Pitt had a lot of scenes where he was looking. He was really looking like Robert Redford, and Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio is slowly looking more and more like uh, Jack Nicholson. Yeah, which is like he's doing. You a lot look of at that. what Jack yeah. Nicholson looks like. Now. <laughs> it looks like, like now, boy. Oh, man. No one visions of that future, but uh, um, but yeah, really great. Yeah, I th- I really enjoyed. It. I think it's worth seeing. Uh, I don't think we ended up doing a better than worse than. In my opinion, I think this film is better than The Hateful Eight, worse than Django Unchained and Inglorious Bastards. I think it's a sweet spot there for me. I yeah, I went back and watched Django Unchained again just last night, and I I enjoyed it in the moment a lot more. But I think that maybe retrospectively, I could I could justify uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood being a, a better movie from like a artistic point of view, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I think uh, so. I went back and watched uh, a Reservoir Dogs got added to yeah, Australian Netflix. <laughs> uh, actually, Reservoir yeah. Dogs. Oh, there you go. Got. Retrospectively added to Australian Netflix recently, like last week or something. Yeah. And I watched it again. It's very bare bones. It's a very simple idea. It's extremely well executed. I would have said that was my favorite Tarantino movie for a bunch of different reasons. But I've also had that opinion since I was like 14. I don't think it and holds up that well. I think that. Yeah. It, well, you, you see what it gave way to later in his career. Yeah. But I think you're right. I think there are parts of it where the cracks are showing now. Yeah. And I feel like this is kind of, for me, it it really is a much more like grown up version of what a Tarantino film is twenty years later or whatever the fuck. It really feels also, like he made it? that movie when he was twenty nine. That's crazy. And that's fucking scary. You got a couple years, bro. Like, a few years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Genuinely, my thought process is like, oh, I got to get a fucking fire under my ass for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's uh, I I think this for me, sorry, better than worse than, um. Better than Reservoir Dogs, which is huge. Like, maybe worse than Pulp Fiction, but better in a lot of ways. And I don't really know because I haven't rewatched Pulp Fiction recently. This could easily be his best yet, in my opinion. Yeah, Yeah, for me. I enjoyed the other ones, but the fact that this is so much more, for me, three-dimensional... I think I, I admire this movie a lot more than I admire the other ones. Yeah. So many of his films are so good. I think that if you want to go in on like a Tarantino film with a bit more depth to them, this one's great. I also think that Inglorious Bastards is really good for that. Inglorious yeah. Bastards is a lot of fun, but it has a lot of little scenes like that milk scene where there's a lot of shit going on. Um, they just make it a ton of fun to watch and rewatch and rewatch. Yeah. In a unique way that I think a lot of filmmakers aren't. Yeah, and I just want to rewatch this one again for like the characterization. Yeah, me too. Man, yeah. Great, great what fucking a heavy movie. Scenes, I think I will really. go go back and watch this again while it's in cinemas because it's not gonna be um I just We got those vouchers from the Swedish subtitles oh, yeah, that's from Midsummer. Right. We can use those. Is that about all the time I got left for this week's episode of Beef Station? I think then? I'm done. I really, really like this movie, man. And also it feels like it's got a bit of significance to it that I don't I mean, as you touched on, like his in terms of his career, that yeah. like there's maybe gonna be one more. 
yeah. you know, if he if he sticks to his promise. And it, I, I'm glad because I was worried this was... To be honest, I would have been a little disappointed if this was just another one. Yeah. It, feels, it would have felt like a bit of a different reskin. Uh, uh, so I, I thought Hateful Eight was a bit of a slump, so I'm glad that this one's back up. Well, for me, I think if you go back and watch Hateful Eight and then Reservoir Dogs, you can see that he's basically remaking the movie, but in a <laughs> context that he likes a lot better. Yeah. And this was... I was worried it was going to be a similar deal. Yeah. Um, this one was this something new, so different. Man, it feels so, so much more well thought out. I, yeah, I, yeah, it, really, it really. It feels great. like a brand new direction, which I'll is stop, a, which is brilliant. I'll stop fawning over it, but okay. you wouldn't expect a new direction from Tarantino, no. but he's actually managed it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great. Thanks for joining us this week. We hope you go out and see this movie and let us know what you think. Mm. If you want to email us, that's beefstationpod at gmail.com. The Facebook page where you can like us and keep up to date with the new episodes is facebook.com slash beefstationpod. Catch you on the next one. I'm Oscar. Andrew. See you later. <laughs>